0: Diners Call Salad and Fries a Meal by Wendy Guzman. Then Gina Heeb's Wine Turns Out to Be Most Liquid of Assets After Bank Failures. Patrick Cuffey has an article, Stores Accused of Fake Sales. We'll follow that up with an article by Macaulay A. Sequeres. Are You Sure You Have Cancer? And then Allison Gopnik wrote, The instinct to share our good fortune. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article. Who needs an entree? Diners call salad and fries a meal. The New York City Cabaret Club 54 Below used to see a steady stream of orders for burgers and heartier entrees such as their chili-rub skirt steak with bliss potatoes or their rib-sticking pasta dish, the cavatelli pomodoro with spinach and zucchini. These days, the venue is seeing orders simpler yet stranger. Restaurant manager Mandisa Boxill says many patrons are ordering salad and a serving of fries as a complete meal. Yes, something leafy and heart-healthy paired with an order of salted French starch. If dinner was music, this is a string quartet and a side order of death metal. Do these things really go together? Boxall added extra manpower to the salad station to keep up and said the salad and fries trend is the biggest she's seen in her 11 years in the industry. This is definitely a little peculiar, she says, Usually you can tell what people are going to order, but now the mixture is definitely different. American diners have long adhered to basic unwritten rules about what goes with what, meat and potatoes, eggs and bacon, or a dinner that starts with soup, then salad, entree, and dessert. Diners and restaurant workers say that more and more, these guidelines are being flung aside for menu mayhem. Fries, traditionally paired with burgers, have become salad's best friend. A starter can be had any time, while a main may be skipped altogether. Food industry consulting firm Technomic has observed an increase in customer ordering sides over the last year and estimated that 15% of diners order sides as their entree. Skipping larger entrees may also save money at a time when restaurant prices have climbed. According to market research firm Data Essential, the median price of a beef entree at a casual and fine dining restaurant is $22.95. A non-fried veggie side costs about $4.50. Other appetizers, such as sliders, are $10.00. We've gone to a space of more liberated dining, says Nia Grace, who owns three Boston restaurants, including Darrell's Corner Bar and Kitchen. Some patrons make a reservation for dessert only or swap and choose from around the menu. They'll say, I'll do this and that, and listen, give me one of those, give me that. I'll pair it with this, and we'll share that. She recalls one customer ordered chili, a side of cheese, and Cajun fries, and then proceeded to make chili cheese fries right at the table. Younger diners won't be pigeonholed into one page of the menu, says Lindsay Kelso, 26, who works in digital communications and lives in Savoy, Illinois. She's a salad and fries regular. We were raised in a society where it was so eat healthy food with the older generation, says Kelso. Supplementing salad with fries, she said, it's like I am, but I'm getting a little treat with it. The salad and fries craze speaks to an emerging connection between indulgence and mental health, says Diana Kelter, Associate Director of Consumer Trends at market research firm Mintel. Although indulgence is typically regarded as bad for physical health, Generation Z sees it as helpful for mental health. More Generation Z adults, ages 18 to 26, rank taking care of their mental health as a top three health priority, according to a Mintel report. Cobbling together sides also helps with portion control. India Davis, 32, a Nashville, Tennessee financial coordinator, says she's noticed herself struggling to finish a full restaurant meal. On a recent trip to Cheesecake Factory, Davis barely finished half a cheeseburger, and preferred to munch her sides of brussels sprouts and fries. I don't know if it's just me getting older or what, she says, but I was like, this is ridiculous. Davis took home the leftover cheeseburger and later made it into its own meal. In ordering only app's sides as an entree at a fine dining restaurant frowned upon, asked a recent poster on a Reddit forum for food servers. It drew nearly 2,000 views and more than 300 comments, with most saying to order what you want. In most cases, ordering side dishes as appetizers is lame, said Adam Reiner, author of food blog, The Restaurant Manifesto. Weiner, who has worked at fine dining restaurants, says diners hack the menu to find cheaper apps, but the savings aren't worth having a boring meal. He's seen people order sides of sauteed escargot or steamed broccoli rabe as appetizers that wound up unfinished. Pairing greens with greasy sticks of starch isn't entirely new. The famed Pittsburgh salad has fries on top. The current craze often involves a Caesar salad and side of fries, perhaps with a Diet Coke or wine. Some fans top salads with chicken or salmon. Or spring for truffle fries when the opportunity presents. Haley Schuster, a 23-year-old in Austin, Texas, posted a TikTok video captioned, the feminine urge to order a Caesar salad with a side of fries to the tune of This Will Be an Everlasting Love, which has reached 8 million views. Houston high school student Maite Chacon says she doesn't usually order salad, tried the salad fries combo after seeing Buzz about it. Five minutes passed by and the fries were halfway done she said and the salad was still there. And now wine turns out to be most liquid of assets after bank failures. Frank Martell knew he had scored when he bought dozens of bonds from Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic Bank. Bond wine that is a hard-to-find Napa Valley cult favorite that goes for several hundred dollars a bottle. The Cabernet Sauvignons were part of two massive wine collections the government seized this year, one from SVB and one from First Republic after the two California banks collapsed. The idea that a bank would have had this at all in their asset list is kind of uncommon, says Martel, senior director of fine and rare wines at Heritage Auctions, headquartered in Dallas. They suited us just perfectly. Heritage doesn't claim to be huge in wine, a market it first splashed into in 2010, and is instead known for its rare coin and other collections. But when Martell heard through the grapevine that the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation was having the wine auctioned off, he was eager to jump in. After all, a rare coin company buying wine from two claps back seemed, if nothing else, weirdly poetic. Martel found out about the government wine from a colleague who had come across a social media post linking to the online auction run by Worley Auctioneers. On behalf of Heritage, he competed with a handful of other bidders for the roughly 1,900 bottles from SVB, wine racks not included. After a number of rounds, Martel won the auction for the SVB wine list for roughly $150,000 with fees, a discount of about 40%. Later, he nabbed the more than 400 bottle First Republic wine collection for less than $20,000, about the same discount. Together, the collections include bottles with price tags that range from $3 to $1,000 a pop. Martell estimates Heritage will make tens of thousands of dollars from the two bank wine collections, some of which the company plans to sell at its fi- "Fine and Rare Wine Signature" auction in Beverly Hills in September. Heritage went back and forth over whether to advertise where the wine had come from; it ultimately decided it would. Regulators might typically be associated with the minutia of monitoring capital levels or double checking paperwork. But things like a 1,912 bottle wine collection are also part of the FDIC's world. When banks fail, the government can suddenly find itself in charge of specialty assets that are extravagant, strange, or even in flames. The oddball asset sales are lore within the FDIC. A column in its internal newsletter periodically plumbed the history until the author, Jay Rosenstein, retired in 2020, an agency spokesman said. Among the items it recounted, 25,000 pounds of frozen rabbit, a 12% share in the Dallas Cowboys in the late 1980s, a coal mine that was fire the day the bank was closed, and abandoned churches and synagogues. Once, the FDI seized a styrofoam cooler that turned out to be holding a human skull. I guess you could say that the failed bank side of the FDIC's work reflects the diversity of the banking business, from earth to the heavens above, Rosenstein wrote in a 2006 newsletter. A heritage spokesman said the company will pass on a 13-passenger corporate jet that the FDIC seized from First Republic and recently put up for sale nor was it interested in two nine-pound Baccarat crystal figurines of an eagle, the First Republic mascot, handmade in France. Banks can keep wine on hand to woo clients, while some view it as an alternative investment they can toast. The Livex Fine Wine 1000 Index, which tracks a thousand wines across regions, has risen by roughly a quarter over the past five years. Wine as an asset class has really grown in the last 10 or 15 years, Martell said. Until SVB and First Republic, the FDIC hadn't recorded any wine asset sales for at least a decade or so, the agency said. It It has sold a whole lot of corporate art collections over that period, though, along with another jet, a couple of pianos, and several aquariums. Spokesman said FDIC records don't show whether the aquarium sales included the fish. But that could change as more banks build out specialty wine lending businesses and as the wine investment market grows. Wine isn't exactly the kind of liquidity banks are after these days, but lenders can still take it seriously. When Heritage sent the team to catalog and collect the SVB wine, they found elaborate climate controlled cellars built within the bank's Santa Clara and Menlo Park branches. The bottles had been meticulously racked, the auction site said. First Citizens Bank shares bought most of SVB, and J.P. Morgan Chase bought the bulk of First Republic. Both First Citizens and J.P. Morgan had the chance to buy the wine, but declined. And now Patrick Coffey's article, Stores Accused of Fake Sales. A number of large retailers face legal challenges for allegedly deceiving consumers by tagging products as being on sale, even though their prices weren't always discounted. This common marketing tactic is making a comeback as struggling retailers try to appeal to price-conscious consumers. Consumers and consumer advocates say that heavily promoted sale prices drive buyers to make purchases due to fear of missing out on a great bargain. But in some instances, customers find that the prices aren't true discounts. For example, a retailer typically may sell a top for $20, but the company may raise the product's listed price to $40 briefly before returning to the standard price and advertising the blouse as 50% off. In some more extreme cases, retailers may advertise the sale without ever raising the price to $40. It's trying to put a carrot in front of the customer and give them a sense of urgency to purchase. And it works, said Stacey Whitlands, president of research firm SW Retail Advisors, in describing the practice incredibly common. Many states regulate this practice, and retailers have been paying more attention to related laws in recent months because there is no question that it's a burgeoning area of litigation, said Stephanie Martz, Chief Administrative Officer and General Counsel for the National Retail Federation. Retailers including J.C. Penney, Footlocker, and Annie Bauer currently face lawsuits over allegations of fictitious or deceptive pricing. Boohoo, owner of retail brands Nasty Gal and Pretty Little Thing, recently settled a deceptive pricing case in California for $197 million. Computer maker Dell agreed this month to pay $6.5 million to settle accusations from the Australian government that it used misleading prices on its website. Such pricing practices all but disappeared during the pandemic as retailers struggled to stock goods and customers faced long wait times. Over the past year, however, retailers increasingly used this approach to drive sales and unload excess inventory as rising inflation and other economic concerns led consumers to pull back from making discretionary purchases, experts say. A number of chains, including Macy's, Footlocker, and Dick's Sporting Goods, reported weaker-than-expected sales this quarter, citing factors such as continued inflation. Retailers are trying to survive and trying to gain market share, and they'll do it at any cost, says Whitlands. Many consumers aren't aware that these supposed sales are designed to manipulate them, said Joe Urbani, professor of marketing at the University of Notre Dame's Mendoza School of Business and co-author of a new research paper on deceptive pricing published in the academic Journal of Marketing. Retailers will continue to promote such misleading deals since the risk of losing market share is greater than any monetary damage they may incur from related legal cases, Urbani said. The rise of e-commerce has opened up new platforms for such practices. On Amazon, for instance, the seller of a $114.99 vacuum cleaner over a two-day period marked it down from $240.99 to $189.95. After this period ended, the seller once again listed the product at $114.99 with no reference to the higher prices, according to a research study. Amazon has since introduced an unspecified series of mechanisms to detect and prevent this sort of behavior among sellers, a spokeswoman said. The Federal Trade Commission produced a series of pricing guidelines several decades ago, but largely stopped pursuing related claims in the 1970s. The pricing guidelines have not been a priority for the FTC. Most administrations have thought it was more efficient to let the states deal with it, said James Combe, associate director of the FTC's enforcement division. Retail chains facing related lawsuits may argue they never intended to mislead consumers and that they struggle to comply with pricing regulations that vary from state to state, said John Villafranco, a partner of law firm Kelly, Dyer & Warren, which has represented defendants in similar false advertising cases. Another common argument is that consumers suffer no real material loss if they can't claim that the products they purchased were defective or that they are worth less than the price paid. A Washington state judge recently dismissed a case against the owner of Aeropostale and Eddie Bauer after finding the plaintiff had suffered no real damage from paying $6 for a pair of leggings with the allegedly deceptive reference price of $12.50. Eddie Bauer's parent company, Spark Group, did not respond to requests for comment. And now, are you sure you have cancer? The patient who came to me for a consultation was frightened. He was in his 60s and had gone to the emergency room a couple of weeks earlier because he was fatigued and had been losing weight. His blood counts there weren't normal. He had profound anemia and a struggling immune system. This prompted a hospital admission for blood transfusions to correct the anemia and a bone marrow biopsy to determine the cause of his deficiency. The biopsy report indicated he had cancer, either M. LD syndrome or acute leukemia, and the hospital physician told him he needed to see a specialist, me, to get his affairs in order. Cancer is characterized by excessive growth of abnormal cells that ignore the body's signals to stop growing. Cancer encroaches on normal tissue and compromises its function. When this happens in the lungs, a mass forms, causing difficulty breathing or coughing. Leukemia rises in the bone marrow, the tissue that makes bone cells. When cancer cells grow there, the factory breaks down and blood counts suffer. I reviewed my patient's bone marrow biopsy report from the other hospital and it indicated that a quarter of his bone marrow was infested with leukemia. But something didn't feel right about the diagnosis. My patient's blood counts weren't quite as devastated as I usually see in such a case. He also seemed healthier than my other patients with leukemia. I repeated his bone marrow biopsy just to be sure and ordered some additional blood tests. Making a cancer diagnosis can be tricky, particularly for uncommon cancers. Acute myeloid leukemia, which represents 1% of all new cancer diagnoses, affects about four to 100,000 people in the United States a year. Breast cancer for a by comparison, accounts for 15% of new cancer diagnoses and occurs in about 130 in 100,000 women in, a U- in the United States a year. A general oncologist practicing in a community setting sees many more women with breast cancer than people with leukemia, as does a pathologist analyzing the tumor biopsy. Both have more experience in identifying common cancers and may miss subtleties that could suggest or rule out rarer conditions. <clears throat> How often do mistakes in diagnosis happen? I lead a study conducted through the National Heart, Lung, and Blood Institute and the National Cancer Institute, in which we collected clinical information and bone marrow samples from 2,000 people who had, who had abnormal blood counts. They were enrolled from over 140 cancer centers around the United States. We compared the diagnosis of those local cancer centers with those of pathologists who have expertise in leukemia and reviewed the same bone marrow specimens. The results were surprising. Expert expert pathologists agreed with the diagnosis of local doctors only 80% of the time. That means one in five patients may have been told that they had cancer when they didn't, that they had a different cancer from the one growing in their bone marrow, or that they were cancer-free when they weren't. Expert analysis of the specimens occurred months after the biopsies, so this information couldn't be fed back to patients in real time. Three of us who specialize in leukemia reviewed the treatments given to patients at their local cancer center and discovered something even more disturbing. About 7% of patients who received the wrong diagnosis also received the wrong therapy. Some were undertreated while others were given chemotherapy without a verified cancer diagnosis. That almost occurred with my patient. His second bone marrow biopsy which was evaluated by our pathologist, came back normal. His vitamin B12 level on the other hand was quite low but shots of the vitamin would restore that and restore his blood counts. When we told him the good news, he broke down in tears, held his head in his hands, and rocked back and forth as he thanked God and us. I can only imagine the stress he had been under during the weeks he thought he had leukemia. Similar rates of misdiagnosis have been reported in breast cancer, melanoma, lung cancer, and other tumors. Some of these are subtle differences in pathological classifications that only eggheads like me would debate and don't affect a patient's prognosis or treatment. Others are more serious. The accuracy of a cancer diagnosis can affect confidence in the efficacy of newly approved cancer drugs too. I recently participated in a meeting of the Food and Drug Administration's Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee in which our panel offered its opinion about a clinical trial of a drug to treat patients with aggressive lymphomas. Lymphomas are another cancer for which diagnoses can be challenging. In a 2012 study from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center of over 700 patients with lymphoma referred for a second opinion, some 17% revealed a major revision in their diagnosis, which altered the recommended treatment. At the FDA meeting, we learned that for one subtype of aggressive lymphoma, the new drug worked well, even extending patient survival compared with the standard therapy. For another subtype, the drug didn't appear to make much difference. And for patients with a third lymphoma subtype, the drug may have caused harm. Almost 900 patients from over 200 sites worldwide were enrolled in the trial. None had their diagnosis confirmed by pathologies with expertise in lymphoma. Despite this, the FDA approved the drug early this year based on results of this trial. It's hard to know how much faith to, faith to place in the new treatment over the previous standard therapy, though, given its wide range of efficacy and uncorroborated lymphoma diagnoses. Studies have shown that drugs don't tend to work as well in a general population after FDA approval compared with their performance in the trial that led to their approval. Failing to confirm cancer diagnosis may play a role in that. The government should require that cancer diagnosis be confirmed by experts to ensure that a new drug is effective in the cancer for which it is approved. We should also make getting a second opinion on diagnoses and what treatments to pursue standard practice for patients and doctors. The consequences of getting it wrong for a condition as serious as cancer can be devastating. And now Alison Gopnik's The Instinct to Share Our Good Fortune. What would you do if suddenly, out of the blue, someone gave you $10,000? Buy a new couch? Give your grandson a trip to New York? Maybe make a big donation to help Maui fire victims? It's fun to daydream, but this simple scenario may help to answer one of the deepest questions about human nature. Are we fundamentally selfish or altruistic? Elizabeth Dunn and colleagues at the University of British Columbia and Chris Anderson, the head of TED, the foundation behind all those TED Talks, have a new paper in the journal Psychological Science. They didn't just ask people to speculate about a windfall, they actually made it happen. A rich couple bankrolled gifts of $10,000 each to 200 people around the world and distributed the money through Ted. The gift came with two provisos you had to spend it all in three months and to you had to use an anonymous questionnaire to keep track of how you spend it. The experimenters told half the people that they should also describe their spending on Twitter. They told the other half that should keep it to themselves. For a long time, economists assumed that people at bottom act in their own self-interest. Even when they seem generous, they're really only concerned about what other people will think of them. But more recently, psychologists and behavioral economists have found that some people may be intrinsically altruistic. Even very young children will spontaneously go out of their way to help others. The most extensive evidence for natural altruism comes from the dictator game invented in 1986 by Daniel Kahneman, the Nobel Prize-winning father of behavioral economics, as a simple way to test generosity. A participant is given some money, maybe $10 or $20, and can decide whether to give, it, to give some of it anonymously to another person. Homo economists ought to just keep it all, and some people do just that. But on average, across hundreds of studies, with thousands of participants in many different countries, people consistently gave away about 28% of the money. People in non-industrialized countries give a bit more than people in market economies, women give more than men, and older people give more than younger ones. But everybody is generous overall. Still, there's, some artificial, there's something artificial about these experiments. The participants were mostly college students in a lab who knew they were in a study, and the stakes were mostly quite small. What would people do in real life with serious money? Would they keep it for themselves or give it to others? And would it make a difference if their decisions were public or private? The new study was designed to ask those questions and the answers were encouraging. The participants didn't know anything about the point of the study and their responses were anonymous. But people in both rich and poor countries gave about 60% of the money to others. Often the money went to friends and family but around 20% went to strangers, much like the typical proportion in the dictator game. What's more, it didn't matter whether participants announced their decisions publicly, as we might expect if generosity is mostly motivated by wanting approval. This study is particularly dramatic, but it supports the general idea that humans are as naturally generous as they are naturally selfish. The big question this raises is harder than deciding between buying that couch and helping Maui. How can we design a political and economic system that encourages this general spirit? That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.